Hello, everyone, and welcome to Speaking with Joy, a podcast to fill your soul, challenge your mind, and make you brave. I'm your host, Joy Clarkson, and an evangelist for all things good, true, and beautiful. So make yourself a cup of tea, find somewhere comfortable, and let's dive in to this week's episode. Days are getting short here in St. Andrews in Scotland, with the sun waking up around 9 a.m. and falling back to sleep at 3.30. And with the days being short, that means the nights are very long. And after we've eaten whatever cozy thing we can eat and put on an extra layer of socks, without being able to go visit friends or go to a pub like we usually would, the nights seem rather long and we have to find something to fill the hours. So lately, my brother Joel and I have been taking to an old and cozy comfort, reading out loud. In October, we read Piranesi by Susanna Clarke, which if you haven't already read my review over at the Plow Quarterly, you should go check it out because I think it's my favorite new read of the year. But more recently, we started an old classic and an old favorite, Lord of the Rings. Lord of the Rings has been kind of in the wallpaper of my imagination for as long as I can remember. In our first house in Colorado, I remember spending long afternoons playing on the mountainside like we were characters in the Fellowship taking the ring to Moria. And then in my teen years, I just associated it with this feeling of coziness and and suspense. I think of drinking a cup of tea and eating a pumpkin muffin and being full of feelings and wondering what would happen. So there's this real comfort and nostalgia that I feel when I think about Lord of the Rings. But it's been a long time since I reread the series. But picking it back up with Joel has made me remember why this series has lasted as long as it has. There's been something particularly poignant about reading it this time, because really it's a book in which many good things are being lost. And how can we not kind of feel that way about our world? But it's also a book about power, ultimately, and that power can only be overcome by those who are willing to lay it down for the love of another person. That is one of those most essential truths that our century in particular, but I think all of human history, has had to wrestle with. So between its poignant message, its incomparable world, which is so easy and delicious to get lost in, There's good reasons that this book has stuck in the hearts and minds of many generations of readers. There's a timelessness to it, but also a sense of timeliness, a sense that perhaps Tolkien had his finger on the pulse of something which was the most painful center of the 20th century. And that brings up a question in my mind. What were the books that Tolkien read? I always want to know that when I read authors that I love, because some part of me always wants to become like them. I want to know what was it that made their minds and their imaginations able to produce such beautiful, heartwarming, and lasting works of art. And that is the question that Holly Ordway set out um, to answer in her new book, Tolkien's Modern Reading. Rather unfairly, Tolkien has often been described as something of a fuddy-duddy who was uninterested in popular culture and modern literature, never deigning to read a book written after 1400. But Holly Ordway, a fellow at the Word on Fire Institute and a professor, former professor at Houston Baptist University, found herself struck by a a dilemma. How was it that Tolkien, who spoke so powerfully to the modern world, was thought to be so disconnected from it? 
So she set out to answer that question by researching what books Tolkien read in his own time that influenced how he wrote, what he responded to, and what shaped the world of Lord of the Rings. What she found in her research by going thoroughly through every archive and library and letter was that Tolkien was in some ways a thoroughly modern man who read the books of his own time and was concerned about the things that other people were concerned about. I got to have a cup of tea with Holly in a sitting room in Oxford and have the loveliest, nerdiest chat to learn what books were on the bookshelf of J.R.R. Tolkien. That's the conversation you're about to listen to, and it's one that will both inspire the nerdiest Lord of the Rings lover and also make you think about what it takes to cultivate the mulch of an imagination that creates a work as great as Lord of the Rings. I hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. everybody and welcome back to Speaking with Joy. Today I am in a lovely sitting room with a cup of Yorkshire gold cupped in my hands sitting across from a lovely friend ready to talk about a subject which I think I could probably end up turning into a five-hour podcast but I will try to restrain myself. Uh, welcome on the show Holly Ordway. Well, it is a pleasure to be here, and especially to be in Oxford, yes. talking about my favorite author, J.R.R. Tolkien, who lived and worked most of his life in Oxford. I know. It's so special to get to talk about Tolkien here, of all places, and then to walk around the town and, and, and see where he went to church, where he studied, where he did his exams. That kind of never gets old in Oxford for me. You know never. what I mean? Um, so it's really fun to be here and do that with you. Holly, give an introduction of yourself to listeners who may not be familiar with you, your work, and what you spend your days doing. Well, I'm the Fellow of Faith and Culture at the Word on Fire Institute, um, which is the sort of educational arm of the Word on Fire Catholic Ministries, which is um, aimed at helping to equip Catholics um, to evangelize, to share the gospel, um, to just be confident about their faith. And as fellow of faith and culture, um, a lot of my mission is engaging with culture. And as it happens, um, since a big part of my work has to do with imaginative and literary apologetics, it's a really natural fit that my literary critical work on mm. Tolkien fits into that. Now, my work on Tolkien, I actually predates um, my conversion to Christianity. I've mm. been a, a scholar of English literature for, for more than that, for, and I've been reading Tolkien for what seems like my whole life. Um, so this sort of is an is a aspect that comes in from, you know, my childhood reading of Tolkien, mm. through my doctoral work on Tolkien, through, and for this particular book, through the last 10 years of research on Tolkien's reading. Um, and that leads me to the book that I have, have just finished and is coming out um, called Tolkien's Modern Reading. Middle Earth Beyond the Middle Ages. And that is what we're going to be talking about today. And I have to say something that I really appreciate about you is we've kind of gotten to have these pockets of getting to see each other over the years. Um, this is the second time in Oxford. And I remember last time um, we had dinner in this little place called Cafe Rouge. And I was in the throes. I was in that kind of like thick of it stage in PhD writing. And we... I don't know if you remember this, but you asked me what I did when I needed to let my brain go. And we talked about the the movies, the television shows, and like the books that we read when you're not doing the thing that you're doing. You know what I mean? When it's not the main thing that you're doing, what is feeding into your brain that's making you um, 
kind of whether it's relax or give a you know fresh wind through your mind and i appreciate it about you that you just you take those things in life as you said the cultural um the things that you do when you're just relaxing you take them seriously you take them theologically seriously and it seems like a lot of what this book is kind of interested in is what what were the things feeding tolkien's imagination his brain his intellect when he wasn't doing the thing that he was doing you know, when he wasn't writing lord of the rings or, or working on beowulf and um, so tell us a little more, what was kind of the inspiration for this book? What did it start as? What did it become? Oh, well, therein hangs a tale. <laughs> um, because this book has been, depending on where you, you count it starting, it's been 10 years in the making. Um, because about 10 years ago, I, I started thinking again um, about The Lord of the Rings and where did it come from? Mm -hmm. Now, I had done, 10 years before that, I had done my PhD um, on fantasy literature and I had centered that on Tolkien. Mm -hmm. So I knew that he had engaged with fantasy and that he was part of an older fantasy tradition. Um, and so I let that sit. Um, but then I started thinking again, well, you know, he's part of a tradition of literature that was before him. And I had been looking mostly at, you know, what had come after him, but what did he read? How did he engage mm -hmm. with, with the literature of his day? And I knew his great essay on fairy stories, where he shows an engagement with the contemporary writers of fairy tales mm -hmm. and, you know, modern adaptations. And so I started thinking, well, what, what were those books like? And as I started thinking about that, I realized that in the scholarship on Tolkien, some of these authors were mentioned but it seemed that nobody had ever actually read the books. Hmm. They were able to say, oh yes, Andrew Lang's Red Fairy book, mm -hmm. or you know, Natural Hugeson's um, book, or E.A. Mm -hmm. Wicksmith's the, the Marvelous Land of Snurgs. But, <laughs> but who's read them? So I said to myself, well, if I want to understand how Tolkien engaged with these books that we know that he read, mm -hmm. I myself should also read them. Hmm. So I took the, the sort of mission that I was going to try to find all the details I could of what books Tolkien had read of modern literature, mm -hmm. um, because I knew that he'd read a lot of medieval literature, mm -hmm. but I was interested in the modern question because no one seemed to be looking at that. Mm -hmm. And I thought, I will read these books for myself, mm -hmm. and then I will have a better understanding of how Tolkien engaged with it. And when I started this um, 10 years ago, mm -hmm. seven years ago for really in-depth research, I thought that this would be a relatively simple project. Mm -hmm because the sort of accepted conventional wisdom, which came about for a variety of reasons that I go into in my book, uh, one of them being some misrepresentations by his main biographer, Humphrey Carpenter, um, the impression is that he disliked and rejected modern literature. Mm -hmm. Humphrey Carpenter even says in his biography that Tolkien took no notice of modern literature, hardly read it at all. And after these years of research, I can say that's simply factually incorrect. Hmm. It's just not the case because I have discovered that Tolkien, in fact, read a lot of his contemporary literature hmm. and engaged with it. And with an amazingly wide range hmm. from James Joyce and Dylan Thomas hmm. to fantasy writers that we've never heard of to hmm. fantasy writers that we have heard of. Um, you know, he didn't like everything that he read, mm -hmm. but he, he did engage with a lot of it. And he engaged with writers who had very different worldviews from him. Mm. And he engaged with, with subjects and, and um, styles mm. that you wouldn't think that he would like. Mm. Um, and so that process, 
you know, I just kept finding more and more things, which is why this project has taken so long to complete. Uh, I ended up with, I have an appendix at the end of Tolkien's Modern <laughs> Reading where I list all of the all of the books and authors mm -hmm. whom we know that he read mm -hmm. and i tallied up by my count 146 authors and more than 200 titles not counting when we just know that he read the work of someone yeah and this is all post 1850 um, mm -hmm. this is all what i would what i'm classing as modern literature mm -hmm. and and this is only the things that i was able to find wow but this also one of the things that makes this book distinctive is that i attended to finding out for sure that he had read it, knew of it, or at, at a minimum owned a copy of the book. Hmm. Um, a, a lot of source study I found, you know, goes on, well, he probably read it, hmm. or it was the sort of thing people read in his time, yeah. or it has some thematic similarities. Which is unhelpful because, you know, when you're in academia, there's a lot of things people generally read that you don't read. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so I, I took it as my criteria from the beginning that it had to be a certain. Mm -hmm. Like, I wasn't going to look at the maybes, the close mm -hmm. tos. Um, and the astonishing thing is that I ended up with so much, <laughs> even with this very tight criteria. Hmm. So what I really enjoy about this um, project in general is that there can be this kind of historical picture of Tolkien as kind of grumpy in his study, only reading things from like 1400 or before. And, um, and I think this just shows that he wasn't like that. He was just like anybody else, reading things, liking things, disliking things. Um, and I think part of that comes with, like you said, that Carpenter biography, which just seems, was he just in a bad mood when he wrote it? Oh, that is a very interesting question. Um, and therein hangs a tale, because for one thing, Carpenter, although he's the authorized biographer, he became the authorized biographer almost by accident. He <laughs> was not particularly qualified, and mm -hmm. originally they only wanted him to write the captions for a book of photographs. <sighs> but he even admits in a later interview that he basically imposed himself on the Tolkien family. And he himself says in an interview that he went around to the Tolkien family and said, well, you better, you better pick me as the biographer because if you don't pick me, you'll get somebody worse. At least I know Oxford. And he, he basically bullied them oh. as doing it. Um, and okay, fine. He, he, you know, you got to give him some credit for nerve, you know, and getting yeah. that. But he disliked Tolkien. Um, he, the interactions that he had with Tolkien were, were very kind of, cross-grained mm. um he sent a cranky letter to tolkien at one point saying well you know you you obviously don't want to see me you're obviously bored by me and tolkien wrote who back, does that carpenter <laughs> and here's the thing tolkien wrote back a sweet letter saying no 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 i'm not bored by you of course we should meet but they never end up getting together before he died wow so he's not in the same wavelength as tolkien um, carpenter also he was the son of the bishop of oxford the anglican bishop of oxford but by age 21, Carpenter was a self-declared atheist. Mm. Big chip on his shoulder about, you know, people who are religious, as Tolkien was a devout Christian. Chip on his shoulder about Oxford and about academia. He made snide remarks about how a Tolkien subject was a dead end. Um, so and it's hard to feel like he, A, is going to give a neutral um, picture of Tolkien, or B, like even allow 
more beautiful, positive things. Exactly. And so for Carpenter, you know, once you, once you get the data, once you see Mm -hmm. that he, that there's so much that he's, he's misrepresenting and leaving Mm -hmm. out, it's, it becomes clear that Carpenter had in his mind a picture that of course, Tolkien was stuck in the past. Of course he was a fuddy duddy. Mm -hmm. Um, He even says again in an interview that he wrote the first draft of Tolkien's biography um, as a slapstick. That's his word. Oh, gosh. Um, and that he had to rewrite it. And he rewrote it in a week because, you know, the Christopher Tolkien disapproved of, of whatever it was that he produced in his first draft. Mm. And he, he, he said that he had a weird uptight upbringing because of his faith. Tolkien? Yeah. But so, he just assumed it was uptight because he was Catholic. Exactly. You know, so again, he's just projecting. Um, and he, he just basically assumes that, of course, he's going to be nostalgic and stuck in the past because... because well, just because he had that attitude. And so so with that in mind, he's very dismissive of mm-hmm. any potential influences. He, he disregards any of that. And he makes this blanket statement that, oh, Tolkien didn't read anything modern, hmm. um, which I discovered is, is not the case. Hmm. And unfortunately, because partly because of various issues of timing mm-hmm. and, and other factors that, I, again, I talk about in the book, um, Carpenter's biography became kind of just accepted mm-hmm. as well this is the last word in the subject yeah and people just ran with that and it's really interesting to see if you look at the at the scholarship mm. before carpenter wrote his biography there was actually quite a lot of literary critics who were making comparisons between Tolkien and modern figures like T.S. Eliot, mm. James Joyce, um, other other major Thomas Hardy they took it for granted that they could make these comparisons. It didn't feel strange to them. Hmm. After Carpenter's biography, it drops off sharply, huh. as if people just got put off the scent. Hmm. But those initial those initial um, articles show that when they hadn't been predisposed to assume that he was oh, a study daddy, yeah, that they actually did, and enga- that he they thought, well, yeah, look, he's engaging with modernity in these interesting ways. Huh. So there's been a long stretch of of just people having the wrong impression. And now this began, I think, to change with two very important um, scholars' work. Um, one is Diana Glyer, mm-hmm. um, who wrote The Company They Keep about mm-hmm. the creative collaboration of the Inklings. And I owe a lot to that book mm-hmm. for inspiring this book mm-hmm. because she really demonstrates with the manuscripts, with the inter- with, mm-hmm. with, inf- with like the facts, that the Inklings did have a creative relationship. Yeah. They did influence each other, mm-hmm. including Tolkien. And he had been called like uninfluencible and all that. And she shows that it's quite a lot more complex and interesting. I, I, the thing I really enjoyed about her, um, I've actually only read Bandersnatch, which I know is the slightly more kind of popular interpretation of that. But the thing I enjoyed is you do still get a picture of Tolkien as being a little bit sensitive, you know, not being one who loves to have, you know, negative feedback on his, on his work, but he's still, but then you see how things were manifestly changed because of something Lewis would say or something they would talk about, you know, and not just changed, but also made possible because of. Exactly. So that's a whole aspect of personal influence. Mm -hmm. Um, which I don't go into at all because it's a different area yeah. and Diana's covered but it. yours you know, is like the literary. But it's really important to see that because it goes to show that he isn't 
a, you know, a cardboard figure who's just shut up in his little room writing his little books. Mm-hmm. And the other really important figure is John Garth mm-hmm. with his um, just masterpiece, <gasps> yes. Tolkien and the Great War. Which is so fun. It's an amazing book. Amazing. And he does fresh new research. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he doesn't just go with Carpenter the way yeah. so many people did. And he really brings a lot about Tolkien's background as a young man mm-hmm. uh, and, and the way that his culture is influencing mm-hmm. him and of course he's responding to the great war and the trauma mm-hmm. of it and one of the things that i love about john's book mm-hmm. is that he really shows tolkien as a modern figure engaging yeah. with the major issues of his day yeah. in his own way you know um so the theme for this this kind of past uh which you will have seen this series i'm doing right now on the podcast is conversations and I think kind of the theme that's coming out in those two books and I think in yours is the way that Tolkien is in conversation both with other people, um, but also with the books and the conversations of his own time. He's not kind of just emerging, you know, untouched by the war, untouched by the trauma of it all, um, and just kind of dropping this anachronistic book. In many ways, it's, it is this response to modernity, which is distinctly not modern, if that makes sense. It does. And to me, this this whole project has helped me to understand part of why The Lord of the Rings is such a great book. Hmm. It's great on, on many levels, um, you know, as a story, you know, the, the prose. It's, it's a, just a fantastic book. But if you think about it, you know, why should it be that a book written in the 1950s um, by an English academic... Hmm. Um, which is steeped in medieval culture, why should this book be a worldwide sensation, Mm. translated into so many different languages, um, continuing not just to keep popularity, but Mm. to grow in popularity? Mm -hmm. Um, I had an interesting conversation with uh, William Fliss, the archivist at Marquette Mm -hmm. University, where they have a very good Tolkien collection. And he has been doing research on Tolkien fandom. Hmm. And he described Tolkien's appeal as transgenerational. Hmm. And it's really distinctive in that it does transcend generations. Mm -hmm. And so I find it impossible to account for that if The Lord of the Rings is just a medieval exercise in nostalgia. Yeah. I mean... There are books like that, mm-hmm. and they haven't lasted. No. And let me tell you, in reading the books that Tolkien read, many of which, most of which, are long out of print, mm. I, let's just say there's a reason they're not in print anymore. Yeah. You know, they haven't lasted. And they don't speak to this moment, exactly. this experience, this struggle. And yet, Lord of the Rings, and The Hobbit and The Silmarillion, but above all, The Lord of the Rings, speaks to us, speaks mm. to us in the 21st century. And how can it do that if it's not engaging with modernity? Mm. And I think that I think that I have found a piece of the puzzle that has mm. been hitherto overlooked. It's not the only piece. It's not the most important piece. Um, he he was a medievalist. It's hugely important. His his work in languages is hugely important. His mm. interaction with the Inklings is hugely important. His experience with the Great War, all of that is really mm. important. But I think that I'm bringing to here a piece that we have missed, yeah. which is the fact that he was also engaging with his literary culture in really interesting ways. Well, and that makes sense because he's engaging with his literary culture by creating work of literature. So, of course, that context matters. So, 
who uh, give us kind of a I don't know a dim what were some of the the sources that surprised you? What were some of the things that influenced him most? What were some of the works you discovered as you were going through this? Hundred you said one hundred and sixty two forty two one hundred and one hundred and forty six authors and more than two hundred um, individual works that I that I turned up. So I'm sure you can't tell us all of those, but like what were okay? I'll give you two categories. What were some of the ones that you think were most prominent? That, and then what were some of the ones that were most surprising? Well, it's difficult in a way to say which ones are the most prominent because mm-hmm. one of the things that I discovered in this in this research is about is something to do with the way that his creative imagination worked. Mm-hmm. And it worked very much by a process of assimilation. Mm-hmm. And I think I understand better now why he talked about the mulch, the leaf mold of, of his imagination. He uses that image in several places. And so it's not so much that any one book was massively important, mm-hmm. but he assimilates it um, in, mm-hmm. and it becomes part of, of, his overall, of his overall work. So it's more a question of you know, which, which individual leaves mm-hmm. can we spot as they fall into the mulch. Mm-hmm. So one that um, I think is interesting, and one that Tolkien himself singles out, mm. is the book um, The Marvelous Land of Snurgs by... What a the, name! Well, by E.A. Wicksmith. Um, <laughs> so, and this is a, a children's story, um, mm-hmm. and Tolkien loved it. It was published in, uh, I can't remember, in the 20s. Mm-hmm. Um, so he read it relatively soon after it was published, mm-hmm. and he loved it so much, his children loved it, mm-hmm. that when he had um, an interview with his publisher about what was going to be the next book mm-hmm. after The Hobbit... He spent a while just enthusing about this amazing book he'd read, um, you know, and what how great the Snurgs were. And we have the notes, Unwin's notes about that. Um, and he actually, in one of his letters, singles out um, that this book was an unconscious source book for The Hobbit. Huh. Source book is his own phrase. Wow. Um, is that still in print? Yeah. Well, oh, the, the Snurgs book? Yeah. Um, you, yeah, I think you can get a copy. Um, it's It's been actually revived mostly because of, because of, of that. Time, yeah. But the interesting thing that I found is that people recognize this, but they hadn't really looked at what this book was about. Yeah. And it's interesting because it has very much precursors to the hobbits. Hmm. The Snurgs are very hobbit-like. Hmm. Um, and, it's, and this is a case where we know that it's not a simple coincidence because Tolkien read it before he wrote The Hobbit, and he names it as a source book yeah. for The Hobbits. Yeah. Um, hmm. So this is very interesting. Now, another thing... So that, that would be an example of, yeah. of one that stands out because mm-hmm. Tolkien himself yeah. names it. And and that was also helpful to me as a researcher because mm-hmm. he was perfectly willing to name this um, as, a, as a source yeah. early in his life. Later on, as he became older, he became less hmm. willing to acknowledge sources hmm. and he could sometimes be a little bit cantankerous mm. when asked and i think this is one <laughs> of the reasons that people have gotten confused about it they've sort of misread the chronology of his opinions hmm. they come across a dismissive comment when you know he's in his 70s yeah and they forget to look at him you know in his 40s saying hey look at this great book that oh, i read nerds. <laughs> yes nerds <laughs> Woo-hoo for those nerds so that's that was an interesting book um Another thing that I found very interesting um, was to see that the things that he liked mm-hmm. were not necessarily what I expected. Hmm. So, for instance, he loved The Wind in the Willows. Hmm. He called it an almost perfect book. Why now, almost? 
Well, he was very particular. Um, <laughs> and he, he felt that the intrusion of Pan, um, the character mm. of Pan, was the, mm-hmm. the touch that, that almost spoils mm. the overall thing. Um, but he, he found it almost, like I said, almost perfect, a blend of many, many colors, mm. many flavors. Now, the interesting thing is that he liked that so much, um, but he quite famously didn't care for Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Mm-hmm. But the two books have much in common, not mm-hmm. least that they've both got... Talking a, animals. Um, talking animals. Um, if the, and there's a mix of humans and, mm-hmm. and animals. Um, and there's Pan, who comes into the story. Mm-hmm. So there's a lot that's very similar. So why was it that he enjoyed The Wind of the Willows? I mean, he even jokingly um, identifies himself with Mr. Toad at one point <laughs> in, in his in his love for praise from his readers. <laughs> He's like, I can't become like Mr. Toad. So... It led me to ask the question, hmm, what did he really think about Narnia? And was it perhaps maybe not so simple as we've been led to believe? Mm. And there I found it was very interesting. Mm. I traced back and I realized that you hear, oh, he hated Narnia. He was, oh, he was yeah. apople- apoplectic with fury. All of that is like is that fifth Carpenter? hand. Well, it's actually several, it's Carpenter mostly, mm-hmm. but then it's even other authors, other scholars, sadly, taking Carpenter and upping the volume. <laughs> um, so Car- Carpenter gives this account that is, as far as I can tell, just out of his imagination of Tolkien's reaction <laughs> to Narnia. I was able to trace back um, to the original conversation with Roger Lancelin mm-hmm. Green, where he recounts Tolkien's opinions mm-hmm. of Narnia. And... As far as we can tell, um, Roger Lanson Green was talking with C.S. Lewis, and Lewis said, I've, I've written the first couple of chapters, I shared them with Tolkien, he didn't like them very much, you know, what do you think? <laughs> so the very first was just, yeah, Tolkien didn't really care for them. Yeah, it wasn't, he wasn't, you know, furious and hated it and thought it was garbage. No, um, and of course Lewis, you know, a little bit disappointed by that, yeah. you know. Um, and so there's that, and then a little later on, um, Roger Lanson Green reports that Tolkien was talking with him mm-hmm. and said, oh, I hear you've been reading, you know, mm-hmm. Jack's new children's story. And the quote is along the lines of, oh, you know, love life of a fawn, you know, and things <laughs> like that. You know, what is, what does he think he's doing? Yeah. Um, now here's the thing that dismissive comments, mm-hmm. um, has gotten taken out of context mm-hmm. and used as a dismissal of the entire Narnia series. But that, but he, he wasn't, he was actually for one thing, he was sort of chaffing his friend. Yeah. And if there's one thing I've learned about um, Tolkien in terms of his interactions, it's that he was very much given to hyperbole and exaggeration yeah. and playful banter. You know, and... Playful banter and exaggerating his opinions. Mm-hmm. So he was just kind of ribbing him. Messing around. But also, if you think about it, there's that scene in the beginning of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. You have Lucy who meets Mr. Tumnus mm-hmm. and they go to his mm-hmm. um, little house and they're having tea. And, you know, we find out eventually that he was intended to kidnap her, mm-hmm. but he repents. Um, and so, and we know in the end that all goes well. But when Tolkien heard this story, he only heard the first couple chapters. Hmm. He had, he didn't know that Mr. Thomas was going to turn out to be okay. Yeah. And, and, you know, there are some, you know, like the, the love life of a fawn doesn't actually appear in it, but there's some titles that are kind of possibly similar yeah. like um the the ways of nymphs or something like yes. that which i always found that scene a little bit weird it is isn't it and and also satires are like not famous for their um 
For their chastity. Yeah. And in <laughs> fact, given... And, and see, Tolkien and Lewis both would have known. And yeah. Tolkien would have known that Lewis would have known. Well, yeah, in classical mythology, when you have a fawn or a satyr taking a young girl off into a secluded place in the wilderness... Good things are not going to happen. Uh, no. And <laughs> keep in mind, too, that Tolkien has a daughter. Yeah. You know? And it's like, yeah. I can very easily yeah. see that he that he probably thought Lewis was being a little bit tacky. Yeah. Like, come on, Jack. Or dark. Or dark. Yeah. For a children's story. Cause, yeah. And again, he doesn't know where the story's going because he's only yeah. heard the first two chapters. And frankly, I'm still a little confused about... Like, I, I love the Narnia thing, but that is kind of a weird... It's a it's, it's an interesting. I think we read back onto it. That, oh, Mr. Tumnus! Everybody mm-hmm. loves Mr. Tumnus. And he's got the umbrella. And... Yeah, he's so sweet. But it's and... kind of dark. Yeah, he's going to kidnap her. Yeah, and he... take her to a witch. You know, you can understand why Tolkien would say, "What on earth is Are you Jack doing? thinking?" Yeah. <laughs> um, but that remark, when you think about it in context, which is what I try to do. Yeah. It shows that he's he's thinking critically about that aspect of it. Now, if you look at Wind in the Willows, mm. you have a pan figure, but he doesn't interact with humans. Mm. He only interacts with animals. He's not presented as, he's presented purely as an animal figure. Yeah. There's none of this weird sort of sexual tension stuff going mm-hmm. on. Um, so it's a very, it's handled differently. Yeah. So I can see why he thought that was fine. Yeah. But he was uncomfortable, I think, with the way Lewis might have handled yeah. that scene. Yeah. But it gets... We take a lot of context. Of but yeah. interestingly, um, Carpenter in his biography, um, he, I forget whether it's in biography or inklings, but he says that his disdain for Narnia was like the last word, but it wasn't. Hmm. In fact, in a, in a later letter, which is not published in mm-hmm. the letters, um, he calls the Narnia Chronicles deservedly very popular. Hmm. And I think that's very interesting mm-hmm. because he doesn't just say, oh, they're very popular, statement mm-hmm. of fact. He says that they're deservedly yeah. popular. And we have it from his granddaughter, Joanna, that he had the Chronicles of Narnia um, on his bookshelves for his grandchildren to read when they came over to visit. Now, he wouldn't have done that if he thought they were rubbish. No. So again, by really looking carefully at the <laughs> sources and tracing down what did he actually say in the closest to the actual moment mm. that we can get it, I find that he has a much more nuanced view of Narnia than people have been thinking. Mm. Yeah. Okay, so I have a random question because you mentioned it last night when we were chatting and then I thought, oh, tell me about that. You said there's bits on William Morris. Yes, I have a whole chapter on William Morris. <gasps> Do you really? Yes, because William Morris is a hugely significant figure for hmm. Lewis. Um, he encounters him um, as a young man, mm-hmm. um, as a, a schoolboy, and read him, you know, he was so impressed with some of um, Morris's mixed prose and verse hmm. um, works that he actually writes to Edith, his future mm-hmm. wife, and says he's going to start writing um, a story himself along the lines of Morris's work. And we should probably tell people who may not know Morris. William Morris was part of the arts and craft movement. He's famous for his his um, his beautiful prints, which I now have a very fashionable mask of. But um, but he also wrote a lot on. He did poetry and stories and um, really interesting figure to look up after this if you haven't read him. Yeah, he is. And he writes several novels, like quite a lot of novels, Mm. which are, some of them are historical, sort of historical fiction. Mm. Some of them are more Mm. fantasy-ish. Tolkien really loved Morris and owned all, like, probably a dozen of his books Hmm. um, uh, in his life. Um, He had biography of Morris. He was really interested in him. Hmm. And again, this is really interesting because he... 
he's engaging with Morris mm-hmm. and he's deliberately modeling certain aspects of his work in him. He, he sets out to do a mixture of prose and verse yeah. like Morris. And he mm-hmm. says this in a letter. Well, and it's interesting because Morris, of course, is also always associated with that kind of like pre-Raphaelite kind of era. And so much of that is like that kind of modern recovery of a medieval aesthetic. And so it's like, well, of course he would he would love Morris. And it's interesting because he, he loves Morris. Uh-huh. He engaged with Morris but he also moves past Morris. Huh. And it's really interesting, again, to trace the chronology of his engagement because the work that he wrote, that the first version of The Fall of Gondolin mm. is the Morris-inspired book. Hmm. And oh boy, is it very Morrisian. It huh. is so chock full of archaic language. And let's huh. just say Morris is difficult to read because he, he writes... At a, at a register that's so high, you like you need oxygen, and he stays at that <laughs> height um, through the whole thing, and he, he loads up his prose with archaisms, including a lot that he invents, like <laughs> pseudo-archaisms. Hmm. Um, it's just full of it. It's chock full. Um, and Tolkien, in his first engagement with the Mauritian style, imitates that. Hmm. Um, and then as he goes onward, as his style matures, he loses that that sort of dedication to archaism. I kind of love that because it reminds me that even the best authors that we all love go through a fan fiction phase. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where, where I think that part of learning to write is finding people that you admire and then going through a phase where you write like them and then going, mm, well, maybe I won't adopt that part of what it is, but, but they still influence me. And it sounds like he did a lot of that. Of, oh, he did. Whether it was Morris or, you know, what was what were the Snargles? Nope. <laughs> the Snurgs. The Snurgs. <laughs> I was close. You know, the Snurgs. But... That that's, you know, all, and to some extent, even the best creations are imitations, that we're we're trying things on and learning, and, and um, that was so fun. Art, we are, we could talk for forevermore. I want to ask you one question before we go, which is, um, how did you find all this out? What was it like tearing through archives? Did you get to experience fun things? Did you get to get used to his handwriting. What was that like? Well, fortunately, I am very grateful for all the people who have transcribed and published his writing because I have looked at his handwritten documents in the Bodleian and his handwriting varies from (laughs) beautiful to utterly illegible. So God bless his son, Christopher, for all the work that he did um, in transcribing things. So I, this has been a really amazing journey because I started with his published writings, Mm -hmm. with his letters, um, and then um, looking at the editions of his writings that had drafts. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for instance, there's a um, edition of um, On Fairy Stories, mm-hmm. um, which has the drafts in it. Fleiger and Anderson mm-hmm. have done that. Um, and, uh, like, Dimitri Fimi's The Secret Vice, all the works mm-hmm. that have drafts, I've read those. Um, so that was important. Um, looking through... Um, anything he, any interviews that he did Mm. and any interviews with anybody who knew him, Mm. family, friends, students, colleagues. And that's where I really kind of struggled was looking at these conversations. And I dug up in the Bodleian, in the British library, um, in various archives, Mm. dug up um, interviews that have never been reprinted Mm. in newspapers and obscure. Mm. There's one wonderful interview um, in an obscure science fiction journal from Mm. the 1960s, which he talks at length about his views on science fiction. Mm. Um, And that's never been reprinted. So those, those were really helpful. And then I tried to trace down um, any like sort of smaller references. I listened to recordings 
um, audio recordings mm-hmm. of interviews at the Wade Center mm-hmm. in um, in Chicago, um, in Wheaton, Illinois, um, and at the Oxfordshire History Center. I went to the Oxfordshire um, History Archives and looked through the um, librarian suggestion books of the Oxford Union, hmm. which, when, which Tolkien was a member there, to huh. see if he had written anything um, in there. He hadn't, but it was worth looking. Hmm. I went up to um, Durham, hmm. um, England, um, and looked at the Palace Green Library resources for the Newman Association, um, because as it turns out, um, Tolkien was involved for a number of years with the New- National Newman Association, mm. and I was able to discover some new information about that that has not been published anywhere before, and it is in the book. Mm. Um, it shows, again, his engagement with the wider culture. Mm. Um, it didn't turn up specifically that he had read anything by Newman. Um, mm. Interesting. But, well, you know... There's so much that we know that he must have read, but we well, don't. Well, and you yet. just think, as an Oxford academic who is Catholic in the place, you would think that he would. Yeah. Well, and he was he was he was involved with the Newman with it, yeah, yeah, with involved with the Newman Association and with the local Newman Society. So he he, he must, must have. have done. Yeah. Um, but again, it was really interesting to you know to go up to Durham and mm. to do the research and to see his name on the committee reports. Mm. You know, yeah. So it's been really fun to to trace down all of the little bits and pieces. Reading, you know, going to the Bodleian and, and mm. to the Wade and and reading um, the, the fan you know newsletters <laughs> of the nineteen sixties. Wow. Because every now and then they would have an interview with Priscilla Tolkien or huh. with you know someone who knew him who would just casually mention. Like listening to an inner um, an audio file of a talk that George Sayer did mm. at the Oxford C.S. Lewis Society decades ago, huh. when he just mentions that Tolkien liked the poetry of Dylan Thomas. Huh. Wow. And, and and this is just something he mentions, like, oh, of course, as we all know, as we all know. Yeah. Um, but that hasn't been published anywhere that I know of, except for in your book. Exactly. Which is why everyone should go get a copy. And um, I'll put a link for that, and I'll also do a little giveaway. Um, and I think that I think it is a fruitful book for those who are nerdily interested in Tolkien and want to know everything, but also people who want to think about what is it, what makes an imagination, what what shapes how we read and write and how we think. And I think seeing that uh, embodied in him um, is a is a wonderful thing and rather inspiring. So where can people find more about you, more about Word on Fire, and more about the book? Well, probably the easiest place would be to go to my website, hollyordway.com, and there are all sorts of links to, uh, to further things. Grand. Thank you so much for joining me, Holly. This has been lovely. Oh, it has been great fun. Thank you. We'll have to repeat it again, and in Oxford soon. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs>